Hi, my name is Chip Stewart. It is Tuesday, March 7th, 2023. This is the Worthy is He podcast, and um, thank you for being here. And um, for those of you that listened to some of the previous episodes, welcome back. And um, today in this episode, I'd like to talk about a phrase that is used by some um, supposed men of God um, within their churches and uh, in ministries, which says something to the effect that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, when I hear this statement, I, I, I feel very uncomfortable. And, and when, when you look at it, it's not necessarily a false statement in and of itself. But I believe when you use this, especially as a gospel-type message, it becomes very problematic um, as it, as I see it as being disingenuous and misleading. And, and because of this, um, it, it can lead to, to false conversions and people um, thinking they're Christians when they, they really have not heard and accepted the gospel message. So if you use this as the gospel message, you know, first off, this, this is not the gospel message. And, and I'll, I will um, go over that here in a minute with you. But um, if, if you take this as, as the gospel message, then the people who hear it and respond to it think they are liking God because he is going to give them a great life. You know, people come, everybody, I got a terrible life, you know. You know, my wife doesn't love me. My, my kids have run away. Um, you know, my job is terrible. I just, I just want a better life. And this, this message um, really would appeal to them. And so they think that God is going to just fix their life. Um, God becomes uh, a genie. Uh, those old, um, those old, old tales where you, you, know, you rub the lamp and the genie will give you your wishes. I, you know, I, I want a wonderful life. Um, this is, it, it, it touches or it targets the, one of the main themes of this generation is what's in it for me. You know, I want to have it my way. I want to benefit from it. So what's in it for me? And that's not the way that you initially come to God. You initially come to God because you, you, you realize that you have sinned against a holy God and that you're under his wrath, and you beg for his forgiveness. But I'll, I'll get into that in a second. So, this, this statement is also can serve as a pathway to the, the health and wealth type preaching that we hear from many of the, the preachers um, around the country now. Because it, it, you know, hey, it'll give you a great life, and God just wants to give you a great life. And the bottom line is, this sort of approach, in my opinion, it appeals to the self-centeredness of man, the, the, you know, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And that is not, that's not what God is doing. He certainly doesn't appeal to that. Rather, what he desires what god desires is our repentance and accepting christ as our lord and savior so the true gospel message and i'll read um i'll read a few passages here 
um, starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, where Paul says, Now I make it known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaim to you as good news, unless you believe for nothing. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. So that's a very succinct statement um, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, a very succinct gospel message. I'm going to walk through a series of scriptures now that that um, add a little bit more um, depth to a color, if you will. And I'm going to start off in Romans in chapter three, verse twenty-three. And this is this is why we need the good news because there's some bad news um, that that we all must face, and that is for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in verse 10, the same chapter, as is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And then Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're looking here at the problem we're faced with. We are sinners against a holy God. And the first part of the gospel message is recognize this and repenting of our sins, meaning we see our sin the same way as God does. It's repulsive, and we we cry out for his forgiveness, and then we accept the, the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross to pay for those sins. So it says here, but the gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. 1 Corinthians, um, I have a scripture here that I actually already read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then uh, in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So here we have the gospel message where people recognize they're sinners and then then accept Christ as that payment for their sins and and accept him as both their Lord and Savior. Lord meaning they will obey him and Savior meaning he, 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 uh, his sacrifice gives them um, eternal life with, uh, with God. So talking about God's love in this, you know, God loves you in, in this instance, Talking about God's love without mentioning the Son as a manifestation of that love, especially in tied with um, the gospel message, um, I'm thinking from a perspective of the unsaved here, they can draw the false conclusion that God loves them just the way they are, meaning in their current sinful state without repentance, and that his desire is to make their lives better in a fleshly and worldly way. However, the Bible is very clear that all are under the wrath of God until they repent and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Jesus makes this very clear during his conversation with Nicodemus in in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son 
into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifest as having been done by God. And also in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So it's that, that combining and showing that God loves us through the sacrifice of his son. So when that's absent, especially in a gospel message, when talking about God's love, there's a lot left out. Also, when you, when you consider the statement, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, the, uh, the focus or, or, um, or orientation of the statement seems to be more, be more on the believer rather than on God. And that kind of makes you wonder, you know, whose plan is it really? I mean, you know, okay, it says God has a wonderful plan for your life. But, you know, when you, you hear that, it's like, okay, well, that's my idea of a good plan for my life. And God's going to give that to me. And, and that's not the case for believers. God does give believers a wonderful life, but it might not really look like it at the time. But I think what's what's important here is the orientation of what is being said. Now, let's take a look at Psalm 27 right now and David's orientation toward God rather than himself. Because when you, when you think of the statement, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, it's all about, it's focusing on me Let's turn the focus to God. Let's listen to what David has to say here in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and I will make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. 
this is a great example of where all his focus is on the Lord God. He says that the Lord will lead him on a level path. The Lord, he is seeking the Lord for his, his protection, his sustenance, everything in his life. And that's where, where we have to have our focus is on God and what he, who he is, his holiness, and who he is as God. Instead, I think this uh, the statement that, that we often hear is more from a, a fleshly, worldly perspective than, than a godly um, perspective. You know, in, instead of this, he calls us in Leviticus 19 and 1 Peter chapter 1 to be holy, for he is holy. You know, is this, is this call to be holy? Is that attractive to a worldly or a, or a fleshly man? You know, would this equate with a wonderful life to him, to be holy like God is holy? He also, God also calls us to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among, among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. That's the wonderful life, is being conformed to the image of his Son, at least in God's eyes. And maybe we need to look at it from um, the perspective of some of the um, saints, if you will, some of the prophets, some of the the, um, the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we'll take a look, a quick look at one um, that's um, outside of the Bible, um, post biblical times. And the first one um, that you know, use an example of of a of a wonderful life, you know, wonderful plan that God has for somebody's life is Job. That's pretty. Many of you are probably thinking that. <laughs> So Job, um, God allows Satan to relentlessly assault him. And, and this is a man who God himself described like this. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Is that something that you know, God loves you and you use the statement, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. If you don't know who God is, then, you know, you're going to have a very superficial and, and worldly idea of what a wonderful life is because God does have a plan for Job's life. And in the process, he allows Satan to assault him. Satan takes from Job his servants, his sheep, his camels, his sons and daughters, and his health. He has a wife who tells him to curse God and die. His three friends give him terrible advice. And then finally, Job is answered by God himself. He's confronted by God. And this is in Job chapter 38. Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you make me know. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then later Job repents in in, um, chapter 42. Then Job answered Yahweh and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too marvelous for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak and I will ask you and you make me know. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. My eye sees you. Therefore, I reject myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And after this, this after Job repents, who, who God has described as a blameless an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil, he restores Job's fortunes twofold. But you think about what God is doing, how God is working in Job's life. And if you were to just, you know, off the cuff, think of a wonderful life, would this be it? Our wonderful life is in submission to our Savior, to glorify God. It's not some worldly concept of a wonderful life. And Job is a perfect example of this. In this, he he tested Job. He allowed Job to be buffeted by Satan. And he came out on the other side better. Testing him in a fire, refining him, making him more like Christ. Then you have Joseph who is sold into slavery by, by his brothers, accused of sexual assault and thrown into prison. But then he was made second only to Pharaoh in the kingdom of Egypt. And then it was stated, but what his brothers meant for evil against him, God meant it for good. And you have to consider, you know, at the time that this was happening to him, when he was sold into slavery by his brothers, um, they, all, they almost killed him. They wanted to actually kill him. You know, how do we... When, when something like this is going on, you know, how do we know that God means it for good? Well, he tells us, back up in Romans chapter 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's hard to understand if, you know, you're not a believer and you're, you know, you're not called according to his purpose. And that's where we have to trust. You know, we have difficult times in our lives and we have to trust that God means it for good. Then you have the prophets. You have Hosea. Um, Chapter 1, it tells us how God told him to marry a harlot (laughs) as an example of Israel's harlotry against God himself. Their spiritual harlotry. You know, that, that doesn't sound like much of a wonderful life, but... God chose Hosea to glorify himself. Ezekiel, in chapter 4, God, uh, it talks about how God told him to build a model of the siege of Jerusalem and lay beside it for 390 days, representing Israel's 390 years of iniquity, and then another 40 days for the iniquity of Judah. And on the surface, that doesn't sound like a very wonderful life to, <laughs> to lay on your side by this model for over a year. But in God's eyes, it's a life that glorifies Him. That's what's important. Turning to the New Testament, we have Stephen, the first recorded martyr for the faith, who was stoned to death for his faith. 
And then we have the Apostle Paul, who was made temporarily blind on the road to Damascus by, by none other than Jesus Christ himself, and had been shipwrecked and stoned and jailed, all because of his faith and, and his loyalty to Christ. Then you have the, of the uh, 12 disciples, you have 11 who were, uh, according to historical records, uh, executed, martyred. And then the 12th, John exiled to the island of Patmos. Not the typical wonderful life that you would, um, you would consider if you were to dream up a wonderful life. Then you have um, Polycarp. This is outside the Bible. But he was the bishop of Smyrna, uh, who was martyred for refusing to burn incense to the emperor. He was burned at the stake. And then when the fire failed to have any effect on him, they pierced him with a spear to kill him. And I want to share with you what he was reported to have said when he was told to um, deny Christ. And he said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. He was faithful to the end. So, what is this wonderful life we are actually called to then? It's to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ. Matthew chapter 16, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay each one according to his deeds. So brothers and sisters, let us not shrink back from our callings. Callings by the Lord, but rather let's trust in him. Don't respond like Moses in Exodus Chapter 4, verse 13. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Let's, let's not respond that way. But instead, let's respond like Isaiah. Uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. So in conclusion... Yes, God does love us. He loves us so much that he sent his son into the world, stepped down from glory to live a perfect life and be sent to the cross to die for our sins. And yes, he absolutely does have a plan for our lives. And it's a wonderful plan but it is for his glory and not for our own gratification and pleasure. We don't come to God because he has a wonderful plan for our lives. We come to him because he is God and we are not. We come to him because he's holy 
and we are not. We come to him because he has provided the only way to escape his wrath, the just consequences of our sin against a holy God. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross and paid that penalty. And he did this so we can have eternal life with the Father and the Son. This is the wonderful life that he gives us. We must seek that life regardless of the consequences that we face. And no matter what the future holds for us. And as as I recounted earlier, and the scriptures tell us to expect persecution, hardship, and potentially even death. Just remember that wonderful plan that he has for us in this life, in this life, is to glorify his name. We come to him because he is the Lord. And how wonderful it is, how blessed are we for the almighty God to use us in our puny little lives to bring glory to himself. Brothers and sisters, as believers, we must surrender ourselves to the will of our Father in heaven. We must let him have free reign in our lives to glorify his name. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.